you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. We love the story of the kid who made it out. We never... We rarely look at all the children who don't, who are just as capable. And I think that that's what Dasani's story forces us to do, is to, is to understand why versus how. How you get out isn't the point. It's why do so many not. Hello, and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. You know, the U.S., if you go back to de Tocqueville and before that, the Declaration, the founders, you know, they're very big on civic equality, right? They, they, they think, like, this is the big, the big um, all men are created equal creed is what is going to, what distinguishes the U.S., what gives it its sort of moral force and righteousness in rebelling against the crown. And, of course, the obvious thing that many people at the time noted was that, you know, there were over a million people in bondage at the same time they were saying this. And even as you move into the 1820s and 30s, when you have fights over sort of Jacksonian democracy and 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 kind of popular sovereignty and will, you're still just talking about essentially white men with, with some kind of land, some kind of ownership and property rights. So civic equality is often honored in the breach, but there, there is the fact that early on there is a degree of material equality in the U.S. that is quite different from what you find in Europe. And then, of course, over time, what happens in the United States is that we become less and less materially equal. We get the era of the robber barons and the Industrial Revolution. We have a period where post, basically from the New Deal to 1980, inequality in the country shrinks. And then the story, as you well know, is, from 1980 to now is this skyrocketing inequality. And there's a bunch of ways to look at that picture. It's sort of prismatic because as you're talking about the separation of uh, of, a, of a nation in terms of its material, its level of material comfort or discomfort, right, or material want, there's a million different stories to tell what that looks like. Like you could tell the story about the Jeff Bezos sending himself into space. You can tell tell that story as we have on the, the podcast about the sort of crunched middle class, folks who want to afford college and can't. But of course, there's also the story of, of poverty, which has been a durable feature of American life for a very long time. There have been a few huge, massive interventions that have really altered the picture of what poverty looks like in the U.S., chiefly the Great Society and the New Deal and some other things that have happened since then. But it remains the case that a shocking percentage of Americans live below the poverty line. We're going to, we talk a little bit about what that actually number is and whether how good that definition is. And through the years of American journalism, some of the best journalism that has been produced is about talking about what that looks like at the ground level. And part of the reason I think that is important is because the nature of the fracturing of American society is such that we, as we become increasingly balkanized, there's a kind of spatial separation that happens along class lines. There's a huge separation that happens in terms of the culture that people consume, the podcasts they listen to or don't listen to, the shows they watch. And these bubbles get sort of smaller and smaller in which people are increasingly removed from these different strata of American life. And that's really true of the poor. I mean, I think everyone knows there are a lot of poor people. 
particularly a lot of poor people in urban centers, although there are a lot of poor people in rural areas. There are a lot of different gradations of what that poverty looks like. And a few years back, there was this piece about a single girl in New York City public school system in the New York Times that was really like, I think, brought people up short because it was so well done. She was such a remarkable and charismatic figure and also because her story was so compelling. Her name was Dasani. She was named after the water bottle that is sold in, in bodegas and, and, and grocery stores. And the reporter who wrote that, Andrea Elliott, wrote a series of stories about Dasani. It starts as an investigation into what basically the lives of New York City's homeless school children look like, which is a shockingly large population, which we will talk about, and then migrates into a kind of ground-level view of what being a poor kid in New York City looks like. Andrea has now written a book about Dasani. It's called Invisible Child Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. It is an incredible feat of reporting and writing. It's a great pleasure to welcome Andrea to the show now. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, so let's start with what were you doing? What was your beat at the time when you wrote the first story? I didn't really have a beat. In October 2012, I was on the investigative desk of the New York Times. I'd been there for a while. I focused on doing projects, long-form narrative pieces that required a lot of time and patience on the part of my editors and a lot of swinging for the fences in terms of you don't ever know how a story is going to pan out. You just invest time. And I had focused for years on the story of Islam in a post-9-11 America. And what really got me interested, I think, in shifting gears was in 2000, the end of 2011, Occupy Wall Street happened. And there was this sort of sudden public awakening around inequality. And at that time, I just had my second child and I was on leave at home in Washington, D.C., where I'd grown up. And I pulled off of my shelf this old copy of Alex Kotlowitz's There Are No Children Here, which is this classic, incredible book about two brothers in the Chicago housing projects in the 1980s. And I had read it in high school. And as I started to kind of go back through it, I remember thinking, how much has really changed? And I did some quick research and I saw that, in fact, the child poverty rate remained one in five, one in five kids. It's now about one in seven. But at that time, just like it was at the time that There Are No Children Here came out, it, it's the highest child poverty rate of almost any wealthy nation. And that was stunning to me. And then I wanted to find a target in New York, a good f focal point in New York and what was happening in New York was that we were reaching a kind of new level, sort of peak of the homeless crisis. So there were more than 22,000 children in homeless shelters at that time in the main system. And so this is also, by the way, at that time, this was one of the richest cities in the world. And even up until 2018 was the last study that I saw that looked at this, that looked at the city's own poverty measure, which takes into account things like food stamps and stuff, nearly half of New York City residents, even as late as 2018, were living near or below the poverty line in a city that is so defined by wealth. And one thing I found really interesting about your introduction, which so summarizes the reason I feel that this, this story matters, is this fracturing of America. What's, what's also true, though, is that as places like New York City and Los Angeles and San Francisco and even Detroit have, Washington, D.C., have increasingly gentrified. 
the experience of growing up poor is one of being in really close proximity with people who have money. You are seeing the other. I wanted to kind of follow up (laughs) the book that I loved so much in the 80s by looking once again at the story of poor urban America through one child. Yeah, and there are no children here, which is um, takes place in what's called Henry Hoarder Homes, which is on the west side of Chicago, right by uh, what is now the called the United Center, which is where the Bulls play. It's on the west side, just west of downtown. It had been a, you know, th- there was it was low rise projects. It, it, the west side of Chicago was predominantly black and Latino and very poor. Had been the subject of tremendous amounts of redlining and disinvestment and panic peddling that had essentially chased white homeowners out. That. What's interesting about that compared to Dasani, just in terms of what sort of concentrated poverty is like in the 1980s, I think when that book is being reported in her, is, is that proximity question. So in in There Are No Children Here, like that, you know, if you go over there to the Henry Horner Homes on the West Side, you do have the United Center. In fact, there's the, the kind of the brushes that the boys have with things outside of their kind of experience of poverty in class have to do with like parking cars uh, or helping cars and stuff and selling water at the United Center where there's like glitzy, there's there's all sorts of like fancy Chicago rolls through. But they're, but the, the spatial separation of Chicago means that they're not really cheek and jowl next to, you know, you know, $3 million townhomes or anything like that. But because of the nature of how spread out Chicago was, the fact that this was not a moment of gentrification in the way that we think about it now, particularly in the sort of post- 2000 comeback city era and then the post-financial crisis that the the kids in that story are not really cheek by jowl with the all of the kind of wealth that is in Chicago. They're, they're quite spatially separated from it. And one of the striking elements of the story you tell is that that's not the case in in the case of the the, the, the title character of Dasani. Where, where do you first encounter her uh, in the city? I met Dasani while I was standing outside of Auburn, family residence, which is a city-run, decrepit shelter, one of two city-run shelters that were notorious for the conditions that children were forced to live in with their families. Uh, This was in north of Fort Greene Park, just a few blocks from townhouses that were worth millions of dollars. Um, What's important about, there's several things that are important to know about this neighborhood and what it represents. First of all, Dasani landed there in 2010 because her family had been forced out of their Section 8 rental in Staten Island. Bed bugs, their voucher had expired. All these things kind of coalesced to create a crisis, which is so often the case with being poor, is that it's a lot of small things suddenly happening at once that then snowball into something catastrophic. They wound up being placed at at Auburn to an outsider— Living in Fort Greene, you might think, oh, that's the kid that lives at the homeless shelter. She's just a visitor. She's passing through. She's transient. That's what we tend to think of the homeless as. And of course, children aren't the face of the homeless. If you use the word homeless, usually the image that comes to mind is of a panhandler, someone sleeping on subway grates. Dasani's roots in Fort Greene go back for generations. And she was actually living in the very building where her own grandmother had been born back when it was Cumberland Hospital, which was a public hospital. I think that what is so striking about the 
New York that she was growing up in as compared to, for instance, the New York of her mother, Chanel, also named for a bottle liquid, (laughs) is that Chanel grew up in East Brooklyn at a time when this was a siloed community, much like what you were describing about Henry Horner. So Bed-Stuy, East New York, East New York still is to a certain degree, but Bed-Stuy is completely changed now. At that time, when Chanel was born in 78, her mother was living in a place where it was rare to encounter a white person, and you didn't really have firsthand access to what it looks like, what it smells like to be wealthy. She saw this ad in the in a glossy magazine while she was, um, I believe she was at a medical clinic. This is according to her sister because Joni has since passed. But she saw an ad for Chanel perfume. She didn't know what it, it smelled like, but she just loved the sound of it. And so she named her daughter Chanel. All you could buy at the local bodega at that time was Charlie, <laughs> like those kinds of like cheap colognes. Mm-hmm. Now you fast forward to 2001. We're in a new century. This is a pivotal, pivotal decade for Brooklyn. Massive gentrification occurs in this first decade. In Fort Greene alone, in that first decade, we saw the uh, portion of white residents jump up by 80%. So Chanel is in Bed-Stuy. She's seeing all of this is just starting to happen. She's pregnant with Dasani, 2001. And she sees a curious thing on the shelf of her local bodega. She sees this bottled water called Dasani. It had just come out. Coca-Cola had put it out a year earlier. And her first thought was, who would ever pay for water? And that really cracked me up because any true New Yorker likes to brag about the quality of our tap water. I mean, whether you're poor or wealthy, like, you know. So it was strange to her. She just thought, but all, especially to someone like her who she was struggling. She was a single mother. She was unemployed. She had a drug habit. She had a lot of issues. She just thought, who could afford that? And it's a little bit like her own mother had thought, what's Chanel perfume? What is that? Chanel thought of Dasani. She liked the sound of it, the sound of that, of that name. It sort of conjured this new life as this new life was arriving. And it really, it really was for that clientele, I believe. This, the bodegas were starting, I live in Harlem, and in my local bodega, they so, suddenly recently added, I just noticed this last night, organic milk. And that mm. was not available even a month ago. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's interesting how, you know, you always see what's happening on the street first before you see it uh, 10,000 feet above the ground in terms of policy or other things. But I, I met her standing outside of that shelter, and I was so struck by many things about her experience of growing up poor. She was 11 years old. Her mother had grown up in a very different time. The street was a dangerous place. Dasani was growing up at a time where, you know, the street was in some ways dangerous, depending on what part of Brooklyn you are, but very, very quickly could become exciting just a few blocks away or different or kind of safer feeling, but maybe alienating also. So she would talk about this. She would walk past these boutiques where there were $800 boots for sale. She never even went inside. She would just look through the window. She, um, you know, she just knew this other world was there and it existed and it did not include her. Every once in a while it would. And one of the things that I found interesting is that of the, one of the advantages to being within such close proximity to wealthy people is that People would drop off donations at the shelter, food, uh, clothing donations, and they were kind of swanky. Like she was wearing right. Uggs at one point and a Patagonia fleece at another point. And, you know, so there was a way in which, and demographers have studied this. And I think that 
we still don't really know. Ultimately, it's still too new of a field of research to say authoritatively what the impact is, good or bad, of gentrification on long, long-term residents who are lower income. There definitely are upsides, right? You have a greater likelihood of meeting someone who might know of a job or, hey, there's someone in my right. building who needs a substance. You know, so that right. is, and, and just exposure to diversity is great for anyone. Um, it's important to not live in a silo. So I think that is what's so interesting is you, you rightly point out that we are in this fractured uh, country now. And yet in cities, the fracturing happens within really close range. Dasani is 11 years old. You find her outside this shelter. She's in that shelter because of this kind of accumulation of, you know, small problems of small, fairly common or banal problems of the poor that that had assembled into a catastrophe had meant not being able to stay in the Section 8 housing they had. Section 8, of course, is the federal uh, rental voucher system for low-income people to be able to afford housing. It's massively oversubscribed, um, and the market produces massively too little affordable housing, which is in some ways part of the story of Dasani and her family, which is the, the city doesn't have enough affordable housing. How long is she in that shelter, and what is her – talk a little bit about just her her routine, her her school life. Yeah, so she – Lived in that shelter for over three years. Before that, she'd been in and out of shelters with her family. She then moved from there to a shelter in Harlem and then to a shelter in the Bronx before finally, once again, landing another Section 8 voucher and being able to move back into a home with her family. And that gets us to 2014. At that time, when I met her, when she was 11, Dasani would wake around 5 a.m., and her, the first thing she did, she always woke before all of her other siblings. She had um, seven siblings. She was the second oldest, but technically, as far as they were all concerned, she was the boss of the siblings and a third parent, in a sense. Um, she was just one of those kids who had so many gifts that it made her both promising in the sense of she could do anything with her life, she could go anywhere, and it also made her indispensable to her parents, which this was a real tension from the very beginning. She would wake up. She knew she had to get help get her siblings fed and dressed. Her parents were struggling with a host of problems. And she wanted to beat them for just a few minutes in the morning of quiet by getting up before them. And she'd go to her window. And she talked about this a lot. And she would stare at the Empire State Building at the tower lights because Empire State Building, as any New Yorker knows, lights up depending on the occasion to reflect the colors of that occasion. Patty's Day, green and white. Sometimes it'll say like, happy birthday, Jay-Z or, you know, and she just loved that. She loved to sit on her windowsill and, and see, as she put it, it makes me feel like something's going on out there. It was this uh, aspiration that was like so much a part of her character. And, and this is a current that runs through this family very much so, as you can see by the names. Her stepfather's name is Supreme. She calls him Daddy Chanel. I mean, these were people with tremendous potential and incredible ideas about what their life lives could be that were such a contrast to what they were living out. She would then start, she would feed the, the baby. She would change her diaper. She would help with in all kinds of ways. By the time, I would say, a lot of school kids were waking up, just waking up in New York City to go to school, Dasani had been working for two hours. And by the time she got her youngest siblings to school and got to her own school, usually late, 
She had missed the free breakfast at the shelter and the free breakfast at her school. She was often tired. Nonetheless, she landed on the honor roll that fall. So her principal kind of took her under her wing. And I met Dasani right in that period, as did the principal. And, you know, this was a new school. And it was just a constant struggle between what Dasani's burdens have imposed on her and the limitless reach of her potential if she were only unburdened. Her parents, Supreme and Chanel, you've sort of made allusion to this, but but they both struggle with with substance abuse. I mean, that is one of many issues. Um, and and obviously, you know, one of the things I think is interesting comes through here is substance abuse is actually not that. I don't know the data on this, but it's I have found in my life as a reporter and as a human being <laughs> along various parts of the Titanic ship that is the United States of America. That yeah there's a lot of substance abuse at every level. <laughs> like, it's not, I oh, mean, yeah. I think that there's this sort of, you know, like these two things that I think we tend to associate with poverty and particularly homelessness, which is me- mental illness and substance abuse, which I think get yes. very much, particularly in the way that in an urban environment, they get codified in your head of like people who are out and, you know, they're they're uh, dealing with those two issues and this is concentrated. And one of the things that I've learned, of course, is that, and this is an obvious point, is that those are very widely distributed through society. And really the difference is like the kind of safety nets, the kind of resources, the kind of access people exactly. have to dealing with those. And that's very clear in the context of, of her parents here. Absolutely. Her parents survived major childhood traumas. They did not get the help that a many upper middle class Americans would take for granted, whether it's therapy, whether it's medication, whether it's rehab, whether... They did go through plenty of cycles of trying to fix themselves, and they did attend rehab at times. They went, they were in drug treatment programs for most of the time that I was with them, mostly just trying to stay sober and often succeeding at it. I saw in Supreme and in Chanel a lot of the signs of someone who's self-medicating. I mean, I, 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 I have a lot of deep familiarity with the um, struggle of, of substance abuse in my own family and so have seen um, my sibling struggle for decades with it, with it and have periods of sobriety and then relapse. And this was all very familiar to me. It's something that I talked about a lot with Supreme and Chanel. I think that you're absolutely right that the difference isn't in behavior, the difference is in uh, resources. It's in resources. And so I also will say that people would look at Dasani's family from the outside, her parents, and they might write them off as, you know, um, folks with a criminal record. Well, by the way, that really gets in the way of getting a job, but an unemployed Well, if you know the poor, you know that they're working all the time. It's just not in the formal labor market. Um, They would look at them and say, how could they have eight children? That's so irresponsible. And to each of those sort of um, judgments, Dasani's mother has an answer. She says, I Hmm. would love to meet um, when, you know, anyone accuses her of being a quote unquote welfare queen. (laughs) She said to me at one point, I mean, I want to say to them, have you, especially if it's a man who's saying this, have you ever been through childbirth? 
Like, I'd love to meet a woman who's willing to go through childbirth for just a few extra dollars on your food stamp benefit that's never, not even going to last the end of the month. It was, family wasn't an accident. Family was everything for them. This was and continues to be their entire way of being, their whole reason. And for most of us, I would say, family is so important, right? Chanel always says blood is thicker than water. She felt that the streets became her family because she had such a rocky childhood and she didn't want the streets to become her kids' family. And so she wanted a strong army of siblings. She wanted to create this fortress in a way. Right. And that's the 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 sadness I found in watching what happened to their family um, as it disintegrated at the hands of these bigger forces. And we can talk about that more, but at the end of the day, they are stronger than anything you throw at them. And I, I consider family to be Desani's ultimate sort of system of survival. This is where she derives her greatest strength. You just mentioned, I want to, I want to sort of take a step back because I want to continue with what you talk about as this sort of these forces and the disintegration of the family and also track through where Desani goes from where she was when she's 11. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about your subjective perspective and your experience as this Mm -hmm. observer and the ethical complications of that and talk a little bit about how you dealt with that right after we take this quick break. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So you you mentioned there are no children here, and I had a I had an experience where someone I knew was quite close to was actually an anthropologist doing field work in Henry Horner Homes after there are no children here, um, and there was a lot of complicated feelings about that book, as you might imagine. And there's an amazing amazing book called Random Family by Adrian LeBlanc, which takes place in the Bronx, which is in a somewhat similar genre. And in all these cases, I think like you know, there's a duty for a journalist to tell these stories. And and at the same time, there's the old Janet Malcolm line about how every journalist who's not, you know, not deluded will tell you what they're doing is ethically indefensible, which is not true and kind of hyperbolic, but scratches at something a little bit of a kernel of truth, which is that like, there is always something intense and strange and sometimes a little hard to reckon with when you are reporting and telling the story of people who are in crisis emergency trauma. And you yourself or not. And at one level, it's like, it's our ethical duty to tell stories honestly and forcefully and truthfully. And and it's, I think, a social good to do so. But there's something ethically complex, at least emotionally complex. And I just wonder, like, how you thought about it as you went through this project. This is a work in progress. I think about it every day. It's something that I have wrestled with from the very beginning and continue to throughout. And there's so much to say about it. I had spent years as a journalist entering into communities where I did not uh, immediately belong or seem to belong as an outsider. I was comfortable with that as a general notion of what I should be doing with my work because I think that is our job as journalists, regardless of our skin color, our ethnicity, our nationality, our political belief system. If you're a journalist, you're going to cross boundaries. You're going to get out of mm-hmm. your own lane and go into other worlds. But you have to understand that in so doing, you carry 
a great amount of responsibility to, I think, first and foremost, second guess yourself constantly. I was never allowing myself to get too comfortable. I think that that was a major um, compass for me was this idea that don't ever get too comfortable, that you know your position here or your place. Try to explain your work as much as you can. I had an early experience of this with the Muslim community, uh, Muslim immigrant communities in the United States that I reported on for years. I felt that it was really, really important to explain my process to this imam in particular, who I spent six months with, who had come from Egypt and had a, a very different sense of the press, which was uh, a, actually a tool of oppression, uh, part of the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a safe thing. And he didn't really understand what my purpose was. And at that time in my career, it was 2006, I didn't have a giant stack of in-depth, immersive stories to show him. And I was trying to, to get him to agree to let me in for months at a time. By the time I got to Dasani's family, I had that stack and I gave it to them. And I'll get to that in a second. But with Sheikh Rida Shata, I remember just saying, using all of the sort of typical things that we say as journalists, um, I um, just want to be a fly on the wall. And then the, we were working through a translator and the translator would translate and I was actually showing this fly. And I remember seeing the imam's face was just like horrified. <laughs> I don't know what got <laughs> lost in translation there, but it was, or um, then uh, Jim Estrin, the photographer who was working with me said, we just want to shadow you. And that didn't go over well because he just came from uh, you know, <laughs> years ago from yeah. Egypt. I mean, everything yeah. fell on its face. And so I, did what I often do as a journalist is I thought, you know, let me find a universal point of connection. The movies. Now, you are a very halal Muslim leader. You're not supposed to be watching movies, but you know what a movie is. I'm going to pretend that we're going to both pretend we've seen movies, or if you haven't, you're going to... Anyway, and I said, imagine I'm making a movie about your life. A movie has scenes. In order to witness those scenes, I have to be around. This is a story. And he immediately mm. got it. He said, yes, a movie has characters. <laughs> so um, what I found, by the time I got to Dasani's family, this was a very different situation. Her parents are avid readers. Um, they they followed media carefully. Um, but nonetheless, my proposal was to focus on Dasani and on her siblings, on children. And that carries a huge ethical quandary because yeah. you don't know, will they come to regret, regret this later on? Will, so what the, at the time I was, you know, I was at the New York Times and we, we wrestled with this a lot. We just had all these meetings in the newsroom about what to do because the story was unfolding and it was gripping. And at the same time, what if these kids 10 years from now regret it don't their future adult selves have a right to privacy in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the the middle ground we we found was to um, protect them by not putting their last names in and refer to most of them by their nicknames. And and then their cover got blown, and that was after the series ran. Um, but the family liked the series enough to let me continue following them. They felt that they had as a better handle on my process by then. And my process involved them. First of all, I don't rely on my own memory. So I 
I work very closely with audio and video tools, and I have this pen that's called a live scribe, and it records sound while I'm writing. And it's, it's Dasani would call it my spy pen. They love this <laughs> pen, and they would grab it from me, and they would use it as a microphone and pretend they were telling, you know, she was on the news. This is so-and-so, you know. She actually did a whole newscast for me, which I videotaped about Barack Obama becoming the first black president. It was really so sweet. I still have it. And her lips are stained with green uh, lollipop <laughs> because she they, they ate so much candy often because they didn't have proper food. And right. that would chase off the hunger faster. Um, ethical issues. Yes, it was incredibly confusing as a human being to go from their world back into mine on the Upper West Side in my rental with my kids who didn't have to worry about roaches. Well, every once in a while, a roach here and there in New York, but nothing like this. You know, my fridge was always going to be stocked. It was a constant struggle. And I think what I would say is that there are no easy answers to this. What I would say is that you just have to keep wrestling with it. And I found greater clarity after I left the newsroom and was more in an academic setting as I was um, researching this book. I was around a lot of folks like Leanne Fuji, who uh, passed away. She was an amazing ethnographer, and she and I had many conversations about what she called the asymmetry of power that is this natural mm. asymmetry that's built into any academic subject, reporter-subject relationship. And you just have to know that going in and never kid yourself that it has shifted. And and then you have to think about how to address it and what, how far can I go? W what is crossing the line? And those questions just remained constantly on my mind. And they were uh, things that I talked about with the family a lot. I it, it's it's a it's a it, we could have a whole podcast about this one issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. And. It is something that I think about a lot, obviously, because I'm a practitioner as well. And, you know, I think that there's in the in the prose itself, there's tremendous, you know, I think sort of ethical clarity and empathy and and humanization. And there's some poverty reporting where like it it, it feels, you know, a little gross or it feels a little like, you know, uh, alien gazy, uh, for lack of a better word, like these right. are these, these are real tropes of of this genre, yeah. and 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 this book really avoids it. I want to be very clear; like you do an incredible job on that, but like that's not something that just happens. It happens because there's a lot of thought and even theory, I think, put into the practice. Can I delve into that for a second? Because I think it's such an important point. I think it's so natural for an outsider to be shocked by the kind of conditions that Dasani was living in. And I understand the reporters who sort of just stop there and they describe these conditions and they're so horrifying. And actually, sometimes those stories are important because they raise alarms that are needed. I think that when you get deeper inside and when you start to really try your best to understand on a more intimate level what those conditions mean for the person that you're writing about, so you stop imposing your outsider lens, although it's always going to be there and you must be aware of it, and you try to allow for a different perspective. But, you know, what I think was so important was to maintain this family is a proud family. This family is a family that prides itself on its 
so many things about its system as a family, including its orderliness. It was put in, they were put in a situation where things were out of their control. A laundry piled up, mice were running everywhere, and then they tried to assert control. And I think showing the dignity within these conditions is part of that that, that other lens, right? But the other part is agency. So to what extent did Dasani show agency within this horrible situ- this horrible setting? It wasn't just that she was this victim of the setting. No, she right. she attacked the mice. <laughs> she would try to kill them every week. And, and she talked about them brutally. And in the very beginning, I was like, oh, I don't think I can hear this. She's like, and I smashed their eyes out and I do this. And then I was like, I need to hear this. This is so important. She was so tender with her turtle, um, the turtle they had snuck into the shelter. But she was not at all that way with the mice. Of course not. They were um, they were eating the family's food and and biting. At one point, one uh, I think it was a rat actually bit baby Lily, the youngest of the children, and left mark pellets all over the bed. So this was the enemy, and you got power out of fighting back in some on some level. And so that's a lot of the reporting was. But tell me how you how you reacted to this. How, how did you? respond how did you feel you know about um the the pipe that's leaking and which she fixed you know that's part of it there are a lot of we don't have to go through all of the crises and challenges and brutal things that this family has to face and overcome and struggle through i want people to read the book which is going to do a better job of this all because it's so sort of like finely crafted um talk a little bit about where Dasani is is now, her age, what what she had to sort of come through, and also maybe a little bit about how the the fact that she was written about in the New York Times like might have affected that trajectory. Okay, where's Dasani now? Dasani's twenty. She's had major ups and major downs. This book is filled with twists and turns, as is her story. It's unpredictable. It's part of the reason I stayed on it for eight years as it just kept surprising me and I kept finding myself drawn back in and I could never see what the next turn would be. Um, so that's continued to be the, the case since the book ended. She has hit a major milestone though. She became the first uh, child in her family to graduate high school and he has now. she has now entered LaGuardia Community College. She's um, studying business administration, which has long been her dream. So she's taking some strides forward. In the book, the major turning points are, first of all, where the series began, that she was in this absolutely horrifying shelter just trying to survive. Then the series ran at the end of 2013. And she became, for a moment, a kind of sort of, I wouldn't say celebrity, but a child who was being celebrated wildly. Um, She was invited to be a part of Bill de Blasio's inaugural uh, ceremony. She held the Bible for Tish James, the incoming public then public advocate, who held Dasani's fist up in the air and described her to the entire world as my new BFF. I mean, this was a kid who had been sort of suddenly catapulted onto the front page of the New York Times for five days. Legal aid set up a trust for the family some donations came in. What was striking to me was how little changed. And it's not because people didn't care or 
there wasn't the willpower to help Dasani. It's, first of all, the trust, uh, which continues to exist and is something I think people should support. It's helping them all get through college. And I'm also, by the way, donating a portion of the proceeds of this book to the family to benefit Dasani and her siblings and parents. But I would say that at the time, they, they saw that trust as uh, parents did as um, an obstacle to any anything, any kind of real improvement because they couldn't access it because donors didn't want money going into the hands of parents with a drug history and also because they did continue to receive public assistance and so it would break the rules. And so they had a choice, either give up your public assistance and you can have right. this money or not. And it wasn't a huge amount of money as far as I know, although I've never, uh, legal aid's never told me exactly how much is in it, but I don't think it's enough to put all these kids through college. So I'm really hoping that that changes. But basically, Dasani came to see that money as something for the future, not an escape from poverty. And so putting that aside, what really changed? Not much. The problems of poverty are so much greater, so much more overwhelming than the power of being on the front page of the New York Times. And that's just the truth. The other thing you asked about were the major turning points. After that, about six months after the series ran, I continued to follow them all throughout. I never stopped reporting on her life. And they agreed to allow me to write a book and to continue to stay in their lives. And that was, you know, it was a a new thing for me. I had not ever written a book and I had avoided it. Actually, I'd had some opportunities, but I was never in love with a story like this one. I still am always, whenever I'm with Chanel, Design Supreme, any of the kids, I'm captivated by them. I just find them to be some of the most interesting people I've ever met. About six months after the series ran, Dasani by then had missed, we're talking June of 2014, 52 days of the school year, which was typical because chronic absenteeism is very, very normal among homeless children. There's so much upheaval. She was commuting from Harlem to her school in, in Brooklyn, and her principal had this idea that she should apply to a school that I had never heard of called the Hershey, Milton Hershey School, which is a school in yeah. Hershey, Pennsylvania that tries to reform poor children. And a lot of things then happen after that. Yeah, the Milton, the Milton Hershey School is, a, is an incredible, incredible place, a fascinating sort of strange, sui generis institution in a lot of ways. She ends up there. And yeah, maybe talk a little bit about what, what that experience is like for her. So the Milton Hershey School was created by America's chocolate magnate, Milton Hershey, who left behind no children. And so this was his great legacy, was to create a school for children in need. And it's the richest private school in America. It has more than a $17 billion endowment and about 2,000 kids go there. You have to be from a low-income family. Hershey likes to say that it wants to be the opposite of a legacy school, that if your kids qualify, that means that the school hasn't done its job because its whole purpose is to lift children out of poverty. Um, and you can't go there unless you're poor. And so Dasani went literally from one day to the next from the North Shore of Staten Island, where she was living in a neighborhood that was um, very much divided uh, along the lines of gang warfare. There were evictions. It was a high-poverty neighborhood to a school where every need is taken care of. She has a full wardrobe provided to her. She lives in a house run by two mar a married couple. Each home at the school is literally, they hire 
couples who are married, who already have children, to come be the house parents. And they have 12 kids per home, and they act as, as their surrogate parents. And so you can get braces, you get birthday presents, you have piano lessons and tutoring, and of course, academics and all kinds of athletic resources. And it was an extraordinary experience. And at first, she thrived. She made leaps ahead in math. She was doing so well. But when you remove her from the family system, this was predictable that the family would struggle because she was so essential to that. And when she left, the family began to struggle and for a variety of reasons came um, under the scrutiny of the city's child protection agency. And this ultimately wound up in the children being removed in October of 2015, about 10 months into uh, Dasani's time at Hershey. Her siblings, she was informed, were placed in foster care. And I don't think she could ever recover from that. It was just the most devastating thing to her, to, to have happened to her family. And she tried to stay the past. She lasted more than another year, but I think she just experienced such an identity crisis and she felt so much guilt. She felt that she had left them and this is what happened. And she also struggled yeah. with having to act differently. What Hershey calls code switching, which is you switch between the norms the linguistic codes and yeah. behaviors of one place to another so that you can move within both worlds or many worlds. She felt that they were trying to make her sort of get rid of a part of a, an essential part of herself that she was proud of. Like, why do I have to say isn't instead of ain't? Um, this focus on language, this focus on speaking a certain way and dressing a certain way made her feel like her own family culture home was being rejected. Her sense of home has always been so profound, even though she's homeless. And what one thing this book's gotten me to see is how the word homeless really is a misnomer because these people have such a sense of belonging, especially in New York City. They are true New Yorkers. They just don't have a steady roof over their head. And she said that at best in her own words. I can read you the quote. She said, home is the people, the people I hang out with, the people I grew up with, that, to be honest, is really home. People who have had my back since day one, it doesn't have to be a roof over my head. At Hershey, I feel like a stranger, like I really don't belong. In New York, I feel proud. I feel good. I feel accepted. So she's back in the city. She is 20 years old. She's at a community college. What's your relationship with her, like her now, and what's her reaction to the book? So at the end of the five days that it took for me to read the book, to Dasani when we got to the last line. She said, that's the last line? I said, yes. And she jumped on top of my dining room table and started dancing. This is typical of Dasani. She's a hilarious <laughs> person. Yes. She was mostly doing it because she, <laughs> she was mostly doing it because she was trying to show me how relieved she was that our brutal fact check process was over and that she didn't have to listen to me say one more line. But she told me, and she's told me many times since, um, that, she, that she loves the book. It's painful. There are parts of it that are painful. But she was so closely involved in my process. I would be off in the woods somewhere writing, and I would call her. I mean, I, I called her every day almost for years. What were you thinking in this moment? What did you think then? And, and a lot of that time was spent together. I took 14 trips to see her at Hershey in the city I mean, I have 100 and I think 32 hours of audio recorded of all my reporting adventures and 
I just spent so much time with this family and that continues to be the case. You know, we're very much in one another's lives. Um, I don't want to really say what Jasani's reaction is for her. I think what she has expressed to me, I can certainly repeat. Um, she's, she's a little, she's been through this a little bit before, right? With the series. So she knows what it's like to suddenly right. uh, be the subject of uh, a lot of people's uh, attention. I think she feels that the book was able to go to much deeper places and that that's a good thing. And I hope that she'll continue to uh, feel that way. I, You never know with a book what its ultimate life will be in the mind of the minds of the people that you write about or a story for that matter. Um, but I, I know that I tried very, very hard uh, at every step to make sure it felt as authentic as possible to her because there's a lot of descriptions of how she's thinking about things. And that's impossible to do without the person being involved and opening up and transparent. The other thing I would say is that we love the story of the kid who made it out. We never, we rarely look at all the children who don't, who are just as capable. And I think that that's what Dasani's story forces us to do is to, is to understand why versus how. How you get out isn't the point. It's why do so many not? And I think that that's also what she would say. She doesn't want to get out. She wants to stay in her neighborhood and with her family. And she wants to be able to thrive there. She doesn't want to have to leave. That is such a profound point about the structure of American life and the aspirations for it. Andrea Elliott is an investigative reporter at the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner. She spent eight years following the story of Dasani Coates. It's told in her newest book, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. It's a really, really great piece of work. Um, Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Once again, great thanks to Andrea Elliott. The book is called Invisible Child. It's available wherever you get your books. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us with the hashtag withpod, email withpod at gmail.com. Why is this happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by the All In Team and features music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here, by going to nbcnews.com slash why is this happening. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.